0: written about and debated passage in the entire New Testament. In fact, Martin Luther said this about this passage. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know what the Apostle meant for sure. And yet this is part of God's Word, friends, and we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. There, Because it is the most written about and the most debated about, there have been outstanding studies and research done into this passage, which help us to understand it. He, he, did, it's, it's, he intends us to understand it. We have asked His Holy Spirit for illumination into this passage, and so let's dig in and try to figure this out together. So Peter begins with this. He says, for Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. We, we start with something quite easy for us to understand it, it, Peter tells us that um, we it's we ought to be willing to suffer for good because Christ suffered for good because he's he suffered for good and not just for good for us he suffered once for sins in order to bring us to God to, he suffered as the righteous one to suffer for us the unrighteous one in uh, in order to bring us to God he was righteous and so he didn't have to suffer He willingly suffered. He willingly entered into our world. He willingly took on our sins. He was willingly put to death. He said, no one has the power to do this. I do this willingly. So if He was willing to do this for us, then we ought to be able to do it as well in the midst of our lives for the sake of Christ. It conditions our mindset as far as as how we pursue uh, in the midst of the suffering that we have. But then he continues, he says, For Christ suffered once for sins that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Very confusing passage to us. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is Peter saying? And what does he he intend... For us to get out of that. How, why is he telling us this? Okay, so he, he starts off and he says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So when we when we when we look at this we, we have to ask ourselves wh- where was it that Christ went? Where was this? Um, when was it that he went? To whom did he speak? And what was it that he said? Those four questions help us to think through it. And there's been lots of different interpretations three main interpretations which I'll walk you through But as we evaluate these, we we have to think through what is both uh, supported by this text, that is, what what is supported exegetically from this text, but also what does the whole of scripture tell us? Supported theologically. We can't err on either side. Okay, so the first explanation, and you may have heard this before, is that what's going on here is, it's talking about Christ going descending into hell and speaking to spirits or uh, former unbelievers in hell. He's preaching to those in hell. Okay, And this was, a, this was a view that was held by an early church father by the name of Origen uh, and Clement of Alexandria. These were in 2nd and 3rd century church fathers. And you may remember this also from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, he descended into hell, it says, And a lot of that was trying to answer the question, well, how how were Old Testament believers redeemed in Christ? If we are all redeemed by Christ and Christ alone, how were they redeemed? But it was also trying to answer the question, well, what really happened to Jesus between the time that he died and the day that he rose, between Good Friday and, and the resurrection? And so they said, They view this as Christ descended into hell and was preaching, that proclamation is a preaching to those in hell. But not everybody was in the course of church history was convinced by this. Augustine being one of the ones that was not very uh, in support of this. And it was because Augustine, who was in the fourth century, said, well, hold on. He, he felt he felt convinced that this life that we have, this earthly life, is the one chance that we have um, to put our faith in Christ, and this provides some other way. Uh, it, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to fit with what Scripture is so clearly teaches, and so Augustine said, "Well, no. What what Peter's talking about here is that Christ preached or proclaimed through the mouth of Noah, and." In support of this is what Peter says earlier in First Peter chapter one. You may have remembered this where he talked about how the prophets or Christ spoke through the prophets. And so they say, well, Noah must have been a prophet as he spoke to those in his generation, and that's what, what Peter is talking about here. Um, and this view was held by uh, not just Augustine, but also Thomas Aquinas, and even up to the Reformation. But the issue was that this text doesn't seem to bear that particular interpretation. Augustine, um, even though he was a fabulous theologian, is known to have not very good Greek. He was one of the Latin fathers. And um, he he was okay with this interpretation, probably because he didn't understand the Greek itself. By the time Calvin came around, Calvin understood Greek very well, and he was uncomfortable with this interpretation, and yet he didn't have anything particularly better to say. Um, And so we kind of lived with that at at that particular point. And the issues come from this part where it says that uh, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, put to death in the flesh, but made alive to the spirit. If if we look at the first view um, where Jesus supposedly descended into hell, then we can see how he was put to death in the flesh, but how was he made alive in the spirit? The best we could say is that he remained alive because he was alive in the Spirit when he was, when he was on earth. But he, it doesn't say that he remained alive. It says he was made alive in the Spirit through this act. And if it was the second view, if it was this aspect of Noah, Christ speaking through Noah, then how are we to understand that Christ was put to death in the flesh? And how, how does that fit with this particular interpretation? Which leads us to a third interpretation, which now modern commentators are more convinced of. And it is, in order for us to understand this, we have to understand an ancient Jewish document by the name of 1st Enoch. Okay? And now, uh, if your eyes roll with this, because you've never heard of 1st Enoch, you're not alone. This is not a part of our scripture, and nor should it be. And if you know about it, it's probably because you run in scholarly circles so what what is this document first Enoch it was probably written 300 BC before Christ Um, and the person of Enoch is mentioned in Genesis chapter 5 he's mentioned as the great grandfather of Noah and but his real claim to fame throughout scripture is that he is known as somebody who, who never died it's, scripture says that he walked with God and then God took him away. It says that in Genesis. It says that also in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews said that he found favor with God and so God, he, he, he took him away. Uh, Genesis just basically says he walked with God and then he was no more because God took him. Well, over the years from that, uh, the, the Jewish people formed traditions about Enoch. Uh, where where did he go? What, what, what was... What was going on with him and this this document, first Enoch, is a document that was written by someone and attested to Enoch as a, a, pro- a prophecy from heaven on behalf of the person of Enoch um, and It is this very bizarre and confusing and uh, strange and unfamiliar language and imagery, um, but it might help us to understand this particular passage because it seems to put, to to provide a backdrop to this particular passage, as well as some other passages in Scripture. So in the book of 1 Enoch, there's this story, this tradition of the watchers and the holy ones, um, uh, which is an embellishment, it appears, on the story at the beginning beginning of Genesis chapter 6. So if you remember the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, there's this story where it says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they choose. And the Lord's unhappy. And then there's these Nephilim who are on the earth, these giants, uh, who seem to be the sons of God and the daughters of man that were born to them. Uh, It says they were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the book of Enoch, First Enoch, seems to, it embellishes upon this and it says that, there, uh, that these sons of God were these evil spirits that were cast out of heaven and, and joined themselves with human women and they had these giants uh, that were uh, giant people that had evil spirits coming out of them. And these evil spirits uh, were responsible for uh, the the deeds of shame and injustice and sin on the earth. They were they were called to corrupt the earth, and it was because of this that God became angry with the earth. And and these spirits, um, there's the watchers and then their descendants. They're 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 petitioning to God. Uh, can can we go back to heaven? And they say to Enoch, you know. Enoch, God's not listening to us. Will you please go intercede on our behalf and see if God will accept us back into heaven? And Enoch agrees, and Enoch comes back and he says this. This is the message uh, this is the, the message that he says. He says, "You will not be able to ascend into heaven until all eternity, but you shall remain inside the earth, imprisoned all the days of eternity." And these evil spirits are responsible for this corruption, quote, until the day of the great conclusion, until the great age is consummated, until everything is concluded. And so they're not allowed to ascend into heaven. They are imprisoned within the earth until all the days of eternity. Now, this this story is strange and it's unfamiliar to us, but it seems to provide a plausible background to this passage. Um, Now, Peter says this. Let me take a quick step back. He says this. He says um, that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And we look at that and we see probably, uh, if you're thinking like me, we're seeing a body-soul distinction. Like he was put to death in the body, but he was somehow made alive by his Spirit. But the the way that the Greek writers, including Peter, describe that distinction between body and soul is not what he has here. He uses something more generic. Uh, He uses the term flesh and spirit, not body and soul. And what it seems like what he's saying is that he's he's speaking more generally. He's saying that Jesus was put to death in the flesh in, in, in regards to his earthly existence. He's come as a man and he's been put to death in his earthly existence, but he's been, he's been made alive. He's been in his glorified existence. Something that's, that's new, something that is, is created in this event. He's talking about his, his death, how he's been put to death in the flesh, but he's been raised to new life. He's been given a glorified existence through his resurrection. And so if that's what Peter is talking about, and if he's referring to this passage in 1 Enoch then these spirits in prison that, that Peter refers to are the evil spirits that are at work in the earth today, ever since this time in Genesis 6 through now. And, and Peter's not necessarily validating this first Enoch story as though it is gospel truth, but he's appealing to a cultural understanding. Peter's readers, the people of that time, would have understood that story, kind of like we understand the story of purgatory. It, we, we think, Some people might think that's biblical, uh, but it's not. And, and so they, they would have had this understanding of the watchers, the evil spirits, the hold they have, how they are imprisoned. And, and, and Peter's saying that, that Christ came and proclaimed to them. He doesn't say that he preached to them. He says that he proclaimed. So what is it, if this is true, what is it that he proclaimed? Well, what he's proclaiming is that he's proclaiming victory because these evil spirits are the ones who are imprisoned. They are are trapped within the earth until the day of eternity, and they have been cast out of heaven. But Christ, by his resurrection, he's been cast out of the earth. He is is resurrected because death could not hold him. And not only that, he's ascended into heaven, the place where these evil spirits cannot go. And through this act of resurrection and ascension, he is proclaiming to the, the, the powers of darkness that I have won, the victory is mine, and you have lost. And the day of consummation has begun through this great act of resurrection and ascension. Friends, if, if we assume for a, a, just a moment that this is what, what Peter is referring to, then this ought to transform our thinking. This transforms our thinking with respect to suffering. Because Christ suffered once. Once. Because He knew that He would be victorious over the powers that bring about suffering. The powers that brought about the fall. The powers of sin. The powers of corruption and shame and sin. He knew he would be victorious. And he willingly went into that suffering to suffer for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And we have that same hope now being on this side of that act because Christ has already conquered the powers of darkness. He has already been put to death and already been raised to new life, and already sits at the right hand of God the Father. He's victorious. We have suffering just this once, just this one life, and we know that once once we we are brought into eternity, there will never be suffering ever and ever again. But Peter continues. He says, he says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were safely brought through water. Now, why, why would Peter talk about Noah at this point and the flood? Well, again, if we're, if we're using first Enoch as our backdrop, then this could be a key for us as the reader that he's, he's providing the setting of that same first Enoch story, that the, the disobedient spirits are at that particular point. But I think there's something much more than that. Uh, there's an aspect that Christ, is, through Peter, is telling us that we ought to be patient in the midst of our suffering. We need to have patient endurance. Second Peter, which we read for our Gospel passage, talked about how Noah was a herald of righteousness. A herald of righteousness as he he built the ark. uh, Hebrews talks about how he he condemned the world through his acts. That uh, he knew that judgment was coming. And he was proclaiming it through his acts. And he no doubt suffered for it. It took a long time for him to build that ark. There was no doubt suffering that he endured. And we suffer because of the promise of coming judgment. We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead, to judge each person according to what they have done, to judge whether or not we are in Christ. And there's great ridicule in proclaiming that message. Proclaiming that there is no other name under heaven by which man ought to be saved. We are heralds of righteousness in the midst of that. And we and we suffer just as we live out our Christian lives. You know, perhaps we read the news and we hear about all this white supremacy stuff and we, we know people who are sympathetic to that in our workplaces and we, we speak against that because all all mankind are created in the image of God and need to be treated with respect. Or maybe we see the chaos in Washington DC and and we hear people complaining about that and we say, but God has established authority. We need to pray for those who are in in authority as those who are watching over us. And we face ridicule for that. We're in the schools, you know, just for being named Christian, and how that's weird in the eyes of people. We we face suffering, we face the scorn of the world. And and Noah can be kind of an example for us of an example of patient endurance. But he's just but Noah's just a signpost po- pointing to Christ. Christ not only endured suffering on our behalf, but He was also the one who ushered in the victory over suffering. The one who accomplished these works, who suffered once to bring us to God. And and the power of of suffering, the power of sin, the power of wickedness has been broken, and yet we still wait that final consummation. And, and, And Jesus even points us to Noah. He says, He says, when the end of days comes, it's going to be just like in the days of Noah when people were living it up and then the flood came and wiped them all out. He said it's going to be the same way when the Son of Man comes in His glory. People will be oblivious. People will think Christ never doesn't see, that the Lord will never judge, and judgment will come upon them like a thief in the night. And so we wait. We are the heralds and we suffer. But we suffer not without hope. <clears throat> but not only is there this aspect of patient endurance, but there's also this great hope because Noah was delivered. Noah built that ark and Noah got in the ark and the, and the floods came and Noah was saved. He was brought to dry, dry land. And, and so so it is with us. And, and Peter makes this point. He says, He says, that the, the ark was being prepared in which just a few, just eight, eight persons in the whole world, all of them, were brought safely through. And I think that's that's God's tenderness speaking, us, speaking to us, just saying, you feel outnumbered, you feel small in the eyes of the world, you feel like the pressures of suffering are just overwhelming you like a flood. No, I have got you in my hand, and I know you By name, though you are small in number, though my love for you is profound, and nothing will snatch you out of my hand. Just eight people were saved, and we can feel like the multitude is pouring in on us. And yet he says, God will watch over us and deliver us. But then he continues, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt or filth from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're paying attention, if you've been paying attention over the years, you, you ought to be saying, well, hold on a second. Baptism does not save us. You've said that at this table every time we've done this. this is, baptism does not save us. And I say, hold that thought. But you're absolutely right that the, the sacrament, the rite the, of water baptism does not Save us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. And and Peter hints at that. He says, baptism saves you through the through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's it's not just our faith, it's faith in a a Savior who has died for us and has been raised to new life. But it's it's not just the belief in that, but it's being found in him grabbed by faith. Grabbed by faith. Um, when we talk about baptism or eith- either of the sacraments, we talk about ha- a sacrament is a sign and a seal of a spiritual reality. So what that means is it's a, it's a sign. It's, it's a signpost. It's not the thing. It's pointing to the thing. It's saying this is something that's going on. And it's a seal in that it seals to our consciences this spiritual reality. It's like God telling us, I am really doing this. This is not just something that you're doing or that the pastor is doing. I am doing this to you, really. But it's received by faith because of Christ. Um, and, and so when, when, when Peter says, he says this is baptism, it's, 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 uh, it's corresponding to this. It's not a removal of dirt from the body. Uh, he's pointing to the, the physical act of water baptism, how it's not, it's not washing us off. It's not making us physically clean. But it's this appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual reality which God is doing to us through the resurrection of Christ when we are united to him by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it is not that the sacrament of water baptism is saving us, but our true baptism, when we are the thing signified, Is truly happening when God truly baptizes us, unites us to Christ in his death and resurrection, then we are truly saved. We are truly saved. And and it's not that this is pointless because this is what God has given us as a sign and a seal. It's pointing to that, it's it's a picture showing us what God is really doing. And it's sealing to us that this resurrection is really ours, that we have new life, that we are saved in Jesus Christ. Um, and so, if that's true, if that's true, that we have truly been baptized, united to Christ in His death, this death that has been accomplished, and united to Him in His resurrection, if He has been victorious over these things, and we are found in Him, how, can, how could that not completely give us hope and endurance to, admit, to endure in the midst of the suffering that we endure in this life? We have been set free from our sins, from the judgment that is due us. We have been given new life in Christ. And he shows us, he says, it's absolutely and truly true. It really is yours. I'm proving it to you by giving you this sign and I am sealing it to your conscience. As he says, it's it's an it's a appeal to God or a pledge from God for a good conscience. He is... He's telling us in our conscience that this is really ours. This is really ours. The storms of our life may rage through through suffering. And it may seem like it's turbulent forever. But if we are safe within the ark that God has provided, if we are safe within Christ himself, then he will deliver us to the promised destination. We will be delivered. And then Peter ends with this. He says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. Now in in this brief little thing, Peter concludes this beautiful uh, explanation of the completed work of Christ. How He has been put to death in the flesh. He's been raised to new life in the Spirit, and now He has gone and ascended into into the right hand of God in in heaven, the place where those evil spirits were unable to go. He, He suffered once. He conquered those powers of evil, and He set us free in the resurrection. And now He claims His victory and He takes His rightful place on the throne of God. He who willingly suffered once on our behalf. All authority is now placed under Him. He is now now the authority over the authorities, over the angels, over the powers. They have been put in subjection to Him. And if we receive that by faith, friends, that ought to be a great and powerful comfort for us. Our Savior, the One who has set us free, is now... Sovereignly in control of all things, he will never let us suffer beyond what will glorify his glorious name and will be for our benefit. In no way will we suffer or struggle in, in a way where he, we will fall away from him, out, out apart from his, his precious grip. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but he will provide a way for us to stand up under it, even stand up under the despair of our circumstances. Every promise that he gives us is yes and amen. He is, he is over authority over all powers. Who could stay his hand? Who could stay his hand? He is, he is the victor. He is our victor, our champion who has gone before us, and his victory is ours. Now, friends, I think it's remarkable if we think about the fact that it's Peter who has written this book to us about suffering. And remarkable about how he points back to Christ as being the center of our hope in the midst of suffering. Because if you remember back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had said, You know, who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And right after that, Jesus said, to his disciples, you know, it is it is necessary for me to go to heaven or go, go to Jerusalem to suffer for the sake of my people. And remember what Peter said? He said, Far be it from you, Lord, that'll never happen. You don't need to suffer. And Peter said, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, because you have the thoughts of man. You are not thinking the things of God. You do not have this. Don't tempt Me. That's from the mouth of Peter. And now Peter is the one who is unpacking this the necessity of suffering for us. Jesus set His face to Jerusalem and went to suffer once because He knew that it was necessary for Him to suffer the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The path of glory for Jesus Christ and for us, went through the the road of suffering and suffering for good. And I think Jesus was willing to do this because he had complete and utter confidence and faith in his victory, that his victory was sure. He knew that because he was righteous, that his death would be but once. It would be the perfect sacrifice for his people. He knew that he perfectly obeyed God's law and he had no right to be dead, that he would die willingly, and that the, the earth would vomit him up as the whale vomited jo, Jonah because death could not hold him, because it was, an un, it was unjust for Christ to be in the grave. And he had confidence that he who came to bring us to God would ascend into the heavens to be given all authority on heaven and earth. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess. He had confidence that the victory would be sure. And that is what propelled his ministry and his willingness to suffer for good. And friends, that same confidence ought to be ours in faith. Because Christ has done it. He has set us free. He has brought us to God. And He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And while we wait for everything to be made right... He is caring for us and protecting us and He will bring us home. He will forever and ever. Christ has been victorious in His death. He was victorious in His resurrection. He was victorious in His ascension. And He is our Savior and our champion and our victor. His victory is ours and it is ours forever and ever, beloved. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your perfect work. You are our champion, and you have saved us for your own glory, and yet help us to walk in it. Give us confidence in the midst of our daily struggles to live in a way that is pleasing to you, trusting that you will, in fact, bring us home. Help us to rejoice in these things. Thank you that we get to suffer for the name of Christ. Give us strength and endurance. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.